As we continue in our pursuit of revival as a church, as people, as a, as a body, uh, we continue with a study that we started last week that we're calling All Things New. And if you missed it, uh, here's what we're doing in this study. So week by week, we begin in the book of Ecclesiastes, and then we end in the book of Philippians. And in the process, we look at two different worlds. And here's why I'm saying that, because in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the son of David that Matt just talked about, invites you into a hypothetical world. He says, look, I want you to join me in a world in which there's no God, no afterlife, no heaven to be gained, no hell to be thwarted, no eternal rewards or punishments to concern yourself with in this life. It just goes like this. There's life, there's death, there's burial, and then for forever, that's it. And week by week, he comes to us with the same question. And the question is, okay, in that world, if that's true, does anything or anyone matter? And the answer is no. And he proved it. Like right out of the gate at the beginning of this book, at the first 11 verses, he just absolutely crushes any possibility that anything and anyone could in any way matter if that's the hypothetical world or the real world we're living in. But here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't get to the end of it and go, okay, well, mission accomplished, sign his name, you know, end of book. That's it. I proved my point. I've made my case. You can't refute it. It's over. Here you go. Read it over again. Memorize it. Do whatever you want with it. I'm done. And the reason that he doesn't do that is because he knows human nature. He understands people. This man is brilliantly insightful. And he knows that even though he's made an impeccable case that we can't blow holes in, that we can't refute, that we can't undo... We can't deny, we still don't believe him. (laughs) You know, we're still looking for meaning in things and stuff and, you know, and so, well, here's what he does. He kind of puts on his, you know, Air Force uniform and he gets in a B-52, you know, he goes, all right, so here's what I'm going to do, guys. I know you don't believe me, so I'm just going to kind of fly over the landscape of your life and then I'm going to go, oh, yeah, that looks like something you think you'll find meaning in. And then he just blows it up with his arguments. And then he flies over here, oh, you want to try this? And he just blows that up. And then he comes over here and he's like, ah half a bomb for this one. I mean, this is barely worth my time. And he blows that up. And it's just like he walks through every possible thing in life that we could be looking to for meaning, for purpose, for value, for significance, for safety, for security, for all of these things that God has made us deep in our hearts to long for and not to be able to find an answer for apart from him. And he just destroys them left and right like they're nothing. And there is nothing that we look to more commonly for meaning, for purpose, for value, for significance, for self-worth, for comfort, for safety, for security than wealth and possessions. And so that's where we start today in Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 10. He begins to describe a person and he says this, he who loves money, and I just want to pause there for a minute because what does that mean exactly? Like what does the person that he's describing here looks like? What he means is he who loves money more than anything or anyone else. So he who loves money more than his wife or she who loves money more than her husband, the person who loves money more than their kids, more than their job, more than their reputation, more than their integrity, more than their health, more than any of their relationships, that person. Why would you love something like that so much? Because it's what you treasure in your heart. It's what you're looking to, no matter what you might otherwise say you're looking to for ultimate meaning, for ultimate value, for ultimate significance, for ultimate safety and security. It is ultimately your God, and so you treasure it above all things, and frankly, if need be, above all people. 
Solomon says, I know that guy. So let's talk about him. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Why? Because you'll never be able to gather up all of it. That's why. There will always be more to get. And so your life's mission, which is do what? It's be as meaningful as possible. It's be as safe as possible. It's be as secure as possible. It's to be as valuable as possible. It's to be as significant as possible. By gathering up as much as possible, it will just never end. You'll never be satisfied. You'll, you'll never be happy. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also, he says, vanity, and we said last week that actually a better English word to communicate what he's trying to say here is meaningless. And then he describes the experience of the wealthy person. And if you don't consider yourself to be one of those people, you'll be a little surprised by this, but if you kind of are one of those people, you'll go, oh my goodness, this guy knows exactly what it's like. This is right. It's so true. He says, when your goods increase, that is to say, when your wealth and your possessions increase, what happens? They also increase who do what to your goods? Who eat them? Who devour them? Who make them go away? And as a result, he says, what advantage has their owner, this one who's seeing them increase, what advantage has their owner but to see them, the idea being, but for a second, with his eyes as they come through one door and they rush straight past him and out the other door. And you're like, well, where are they going, you know? Go get them back. Where are they going? Who's devouring this wealth? I mean, for starters, it's creditors. I mean, as you grow in wealth and as your you know, possessions increase and as your kingdom expands, so to speak, it's more expensive, and then it's more expensive, and then it's more expensive, and then it's more expensive, and you need to have more coming in here because you got more going out there. And it's hard to just kind of manage it all and keep up with it all and somehow keep it all afloat. My goodness, it's actually a lot of pressure. And then you have people like family members who are in need. I mean, sometimes legitimately in need and sometimes maybe they just kind of think that they're legitimately in need. And you have friends that are in need and sometimes legitimately in need and sometimes they're, they just think that they're legitimately in need. You have people in your life, ministry leaders, oh, good grief, with all of these different causes and they're coming to you, family members, friends, ministry leaders, people who want to be your friend all of a sudden and you're wondering why. And you have to manage the expectations of all of these people. It's a burden. It's not easy. It says when your goods increase, they also increase who eat your goods. And as a result, what advantage do you have except to see them come in this door and race across and go out the other door? And then he says something that's highly ironic. He says, therefore... Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Now, what is the labor? Who does the laborer want to be? The laborer wants to be the wealthy guy. He wants to be the boss. Well, the boss, who is Solomon, is going, yeah, you might not want, you might not want that so much. Like, let, let me explain something to you. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. 
but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why? Because he has indigestion. He's up all night worrying about how he's going to keep it all going, how he's going to keep all this plate spinning, how he's going to get all the bills paid, how he's going to keep it all afloat, and how he's going to manage the expectations of all of these people. He's thinking, oh, good grief, you know, my, my sister-in-law wants me to give to this, and, 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 and then this person over here, they want me to give to that, and then this person over here want me to give to that. You know, and you might have a passion for whatever it is, or you might have no passion at all for whatever it is, and you're laying around at 3 a.m. going, if I give $5,000 to this, is that going to be enough like, to satisfy the person's expectation? The laborer just comes home and goes to bed. He wakes up refreshed. The man who's managing it all, the woman who's managing it all, and they're hitting the five-hour power drinks, you know. It isn't easy. And now he identifies something that's evil, and he doesn't mean that the wealthy person does that's evil. It means that does evil to the wealthy person. It's something that does harm. He says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Solomon's like, I've witnessed this. Let me explain it to you. He says, riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Why? He hoarded them. He anxiously gathered them. He jealously guarded them. He didn't use or enjoy them. He didn't put them to good use. And then those riches were lost in a bad business venture. So what is he speaking to? He's speaking to the transient nature of wealth, to the reality that it's just hard to hang on to in this life. It's hard to get. And once you get it, it's hard to keep. It just, it is. There are like a thousand things, most of them outside of our control that, you know, can affect our ability to hang on to it. I mean, good grief, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Who saw that coming? Your hand is full until it's empty. He says, this man hoards it up, he keeps it, he saves it all, and then he loses it in this bad business venture, you know? But it looked like a good business venture on the front end, and it was the same judgment that gained him his wealth that in this case lost him his wealth. You get the idea? He didn't see it coming. He didn't plan for this. And so he says, and he, this man who lost it all, is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand to leave behind to his son when he dies and death comes along and does to him what all happens to all of us. And you know what that is? Whatever's in our hand, however great or small, death comes along and goes, let's just do this. Let's just take your fingers off of that thing. There it is. It's 100% left behind. Solomon says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand, because death's going to do this, and take it from him. Oh, he says, this is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And so what gain then is there to him who toils for what you can't hang on to, either because it's transient It's hard to hang on to. Or because in the end you have to let it go. He says, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He's like, you know, guys, it's like trying to grab the wind. It's like, oh, I got the wind. Oh, wait, here it comes. comes. The wind just shifted, you know. What's in your hand? Nothing. I've toiled for the wind. And so what's the end result of looking to money for, for meaning, for value, significance, all of the above. He says, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness. In much vexation and sickness, 
and anger, which I think we can all agree sounds neither fun nor meaningful, right? So that's this world. But what about the world in which there is a God, in which there is an afterlife, in which there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be thwarted, in which there are eternal rewards and punishments? What about a world in which there is life and there is death and there is burial and through faith in Jesus, there is resurrection, there is eternal life, there is a life beyond the grave that extends into infinity, like just goes forever. What about that world? What about a world in which God has made us with all of these deficits and deficiencies and and all of these cravings and appetites that we can't seem to find in this and Solomon will blow it up or in this other thing that he'll blow up or in this other thing that he'll blow up and just show us the foolishness of but can legitimately be found through a relationship with God by faith in Jesus who has made the way for that and who has himself broken the pattern of life and suffering and death and burial in resurrection himself. If we find what we're looking for, meaning, etc., in him, all right, so here's what that does with regard to wealth, then. It changes the way that we view it, value it, and use it. Listen to what Jesus says. He says this in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, it's the greatest piece of investment advice ever given by anyone in the history of, of people. And we all know it. But do we all do it? He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth. Why? Because Solomon's right. It's transient. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves and for that matter politicians and corrupt business people and things like pandemics and recessions and inflation and all of that stuff break in and steal. But instead, Jesus says, use your worldly wealth in this life in such a way as to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where? Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, why would you spend... You know, most of your time, energy, and effort during the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, let's call it 100 years that you have to live in this life, storing up for yourself treasures in a world in which it's hard to hang on to it just in that little bit of time. And then at the end of that little bit of time, what happens? You leave it all behind. Not most of it. All of it. Why would you do that, he's saying, when you could spend that same time, the same amount of energy and effort and all that stuff, storing up for yourself treasure in a place in which the wealth is not transient? You don't have trouble hanging on to that. There's no corruption. There's no, you know, it's like nothing happens to it. There's no politicians. There's like none of it. Like it's not threatened. And in which you get to enjoy it for how many years? Million? It's not enough, is it? How about a billion years? It feels like a lot. Not really. Trillion years? Like we, don't, we can't imagine a trillion years. That's nothing. It's an eternal world. It's an eternal life. It's a for forever place. He comes to us and he says, now why would you do that? Actually, I think what he really says, because we all actually do this, like at least in varying degrees, we just, we do. He's saying, why are you doing this? And then he answers his own question because he knows we don't know. He says it has to do with your heart, which is where you treasure things. It's where the true God lives, really, whatever that God may be. And your eye, curiously enough, 
He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he says, the eye, which relative to the rest of your body is the object of sight. It is your eyes that allow you to steer your body around all of the perils of life. It's how you navigate safely. He says, all right, so here's the deal with your eye. Your eye is the lamp of your body. It's the thing that lets light in and light gives you sight. That's the point. So then if your eye is healthy, he says, and you're able to see clearly, well, all right, then your whole body will be full of light and therefore able to navigate the perils of life. But if your eye is bad, if you are blind, then your whole body will be full of darkness and it will therefore then be subject to all the perils of life that you don't see in the darkness of your blindness. And then he describes the worst condition of all. He says, if then the light that is in you, he's saying, if then you think that you see clearly, but in reality you're blind. Oh my, he says. Well, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Because at least when you know you're blind, you take precautions. You know, you get a walking stick, you get a seeing eye dog, you start listening a lot more carefully. All of your other senses are like on high alert because they know they've got to compensate for the main one there that you've lost when it comes to direction and and perils. You start asking questions and walking more slowly. But if you think that you see perfectly, when in fact, however, you are blind, you just fall right down the stairs, you know. You're walking down the sidewalk and right in the manhole cover. You keep stepping in it, you have no idea why. Like, how did I not see that coming? Well, you're blind. Well, no, I'm not. What are you kidding? I I see perfectly. What is he saying? He's saying that your eye, that your ability to see, clearly has something to do with this topic of money because he continues Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. And then he just brings it all to a close. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Okay, so what does the eye have to do with all of this? I mean, the light, and the darkness, and I think I can see, but maybe I'm actually blind, in which case I might fall in a manhole. Like, what does this have to do with money? Because he puts it right in the middle of the conversation. I think what Jesus is saying is, look, guys, when it comes to what you're actually treasuring in your heart, what you're really building your identity upon, what you're looking to for meaning, if it's money, sometimes you're going to think that you see yourself and you won't. You'll be blind. He's saying that the sin of materialism is different from every other kind of sin in the sense that it's harder to see in ourselves than anything else. I mean, if you just think about it, start playing out other things. I mean, like if you're committing adultery, you might rationalize the fact that you're doing it, but you'll know you're doing it. If you're lying to somebody, again, you might create a, you know, an argument why they don't deserve the truth, but you know you're telling them a lie. If you're stealing something from somebody, you're not wondering about it. I've never had anybody, I don't know if you have, ever say, you know, I think my problem is that I just, uh, I'm greedy. I think that's it. I love, I love, I love money. I like, I love, I love it more than myself. I love it more than my wife. I love it more than this, that, and the other thing. I've sacrificed this and another, you know, and I, you know, I never, I've never heard anybody go, you know what? I've got enough. I've, in fact, I have too much. It doesn't happen. And practically speaking, that prevents us from taking advantage of the 
greatest investment opportunity ever, which is why I brought a rope. So here's a rope. I want you to imagine that this rope represents your eternal existence. In other words, you were born here. The red part, which is what, I don't know, three inches long, represents the entirety of your life on planet Earth. So you die here, and then all the rest is what you pass into. I think what Jesus is saying is, man, why are you only living for the red part? And we do that. I mean, you know, we save and we work and work and work and we save and save and save and we work and work and work and we save and save and save so that if, and that is a significant word, we get to the last half inch of the red part, we can do whatever we want. You know, we can travel, we can go out to eat every night and who cares? You know, like, and look, there's nothing wrong with hard work. The Bible commends it. There's nothing wrong with saving. The Bible commends it. There's nothing wrong with being able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And yeah, you go out to dinner and knock yourself out. There's nothing wrong in having something to leave behind to your children when you go. And in fact, Solomon is claiming that it's shameful not to here. He's like this man. He lost it all. He has nothing to give to his son. But I I think what Jesus is saying is, well, but why do you only live for that part? Like, why would you spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years just trying to store up for yourself treasure that it's hard to hang on to during the red part, and at the end of the tape, 100% gone. When instead, you could do that for all of this. He's like, what's what about all of this? What do you do with all this? Because if there is a God, and if there is an afterlife... If there is a heaven, if there is a hell, if there are eternal rewards and punishments to be pursued or not pursued, you get the idea? If meaning is found in Jesus, this is what you need to concern yourself with. There is a this, and it goes on forever. Pretty remarkable. It's an amazing opportunity. And the answer is we do it because really what we're treasuring is not the Jesus in whom everything is found. But it's something else. And Jesus says, okay, so here's the problem. It's a problem of sight. Why does he say that? To humiliate us, to embarrass us, to poke fun at us in the darkness of our blindness? No, he does it to heal our sight. He's the Christ who heals the blind. So live not for this, live for this. That's the idea. And you say, all right, well then where's meaning found then? And that's what takes us to the book of Philippians, but I'm only going to read you a couple of verses It's a book written by the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was a ladder climber before he came to faith in Jesus. He was almost certainly from a wealthy family. He was one of the most well-educated Jews of his day. He was educated at the feet of, of the Rabbi Gamaliel, who was like the man in that day. Legendary rabbi. 
When you read his letters, you understand this man, Paul, was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant man. And good grief was he driven. He was a D personality. He was driven. He was determined. He was a force to be reckoned with. And he was climbing the corporate ladder of the religious establishment of his day, which was also at the same time the political establishment of his day. It was the ladder toward power. It was the ladder toward renown. It was the ladder toward wealth. It was all of the above until he meets Jesus and nothing else but Jesus all of a sudden matters. Why? Because he finds in Jesus what he can't find anywhere else. He says this in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And he personalizes it, my Lord. It's the gospel that makes Jesus yours. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's not saying that, you know, achievements in this world are rubbish or that money accumulated in this world are rubbish. He's saying, look, guys, if that's what you're looking to for the deepest needs of your soul, then they're rubbish. But really what he's saying is when you find Jesus and everything you're looking for in him, in comparison with him, he's incomparable. Oh, they're just rubbish. They're nothing. They're nothing. So I close with this, three questions. Who or what do you treasure in your heart? What are you grabbing for right now? And is it transient or is it eternal? Is it something that death's going to come along and go, let's let that go? Or is it something you send ahead? Something you enjoy forever? Secondly, who or what are you looking to for meaning? Like if you had to finish this statement, my life matters because fill in the blank. Or my life would matter if fill in the blank. How would you fill in the blank? And then lastly, what part of the rope are you living for? Is it the red part? Or is it all the rest? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that this life is not all that there is. Oh, God, give us the eyes of faith to behold you. Lord, to be taken by your beauty, by your goodness, by your grace, by your mercy, by the fullness of joy and satisfaction that is found in you, by the reality that you have meaning and purpose in all things, even the things we wish we didn't have to experience as you redeem them and use them for your glory. God, give us the ears of faith to hear the words of sight that Jesus speaks to us, that we might see our own hearts, not for the purpose of embarrassment, not to make anyone feel guilty, not for behavioral modification, but so that we might be healed and rightly place on our hearts the one who alone we've been made to find the one who alone meets all our needs. God, heal us of our blindness and of our sin. And Lord, 
Let us find our meaning and satisfaction and all these other things in you and be free with every aspect of our being to be generous to everyone around us, knowing that in you we have all things. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.